MSW Media. This week, Donald Trump announced that his White House counsel, Don McGahn, would leave his position in the fall. But this was news to Don McGahn. According to press reports, Mr. McGahn found out about his departure the same way the rest of us did, on Twitter. Trump took to Twitter the next day to deny that McGahn's extensive cooperation with special counsel Robert Mueller had anything to do with his decision because commentators had suggested that Donald Trump had once again obstructed justice. What implications does McGahn's firing have for the Trump presidency? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand this week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor and a CNN legal analyst, and I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, a comedian and WGN radio host who will join us regularly on this podcast. Thank you for having me. I, I have to tell you, Renato, that on my show, we have a game called Deadpool, where listeners can bet on who's going to be the next person fired or just leaves on their own accord. I don't think anyone has ever chosen White House counsel <laughs> I, because nobody knew. I don't think most people even knew his name before this. You know, it's crazy. Part. He mattered to me. He's somebody somebody who's closely followed the Mueller investigation. Don McGahn's name has come up quite a bit, as I think we'll talk about today. Mm-hmm. But he's definitely not somebody who's out front and center. He is actually one of the most effective figures within the Trump administration. When I think of somebody who has actually made a major impact, it's Don McGahn. So progressives out there, Democrats who are upset about the judicial nominations and approvals that are going through at a record pace, you can thank or be angry at, shake your fist at Don McGahn, uh, the man who is really the architect of that strategy. Which has to be a long-term goal for so many Republicans because, of course, having complete control over all the branches of the government is the goal here. You've got the, the executive, the legislative, and now you have your eyes set on the judicial. Exactly right. right. And, and you saw on Twitter uh, very shortly after uh, the president made that announcement, and we'll, we can talk about that announcement in a minute, Yeah, um, you saw... Um, that Mitch McConnell was saying how saddened he was about this, how much he appreciated Don McGahn's service. I'll bet. Uh, <laughs> Chuck Grassley uh, sent what I think he he thought was a private message to Trump, but was saying, you know, please say it won't, please say it ain't so. Uh, very upset as well. Chuck Grassley, of course, the senator from from Iowa. So Republicans, I think, realize the insiders realize that this is a very significant loss for the Trump presidency. Yeah, I believe it. So um, let's talk about how this came about. You know, on on August 29th, uh, Trump tweeted that white quote White House counsel Don McGahn will be leaving his position in the fall. Uh, And I will say when I read that, I'm like, okay, it's not clear to me whether this was pre predetermined. This is something him and McGahn sat down to talk about. And this was just an announcement of of a decision that uh, would, you know, also be accompanied by a press release or something like that or a statement from McGahn. Uh, But in fact, uh, as we found out uh, later that day, um, this was actually a surprise to McGahn. He found out via tweet. And you immediately had people talking about obstruction of justice. Yeah. And the thing is that you would, in most circumstances, expect the president to sit down with his White House counsel and say, this is what we're planning on. But for him to find out 
on social media when he opens his phone and checks for updates. You know, that's the way you shouldn't be learning about your job. I agree with that. I have to say, whether it's White House House counsel or not, I can't imagine firing somebody in that capacity. I wouldn't fire anybody who worked for me in that manner. I imagine anybody who's listening to this, no matter what your job is. I mean, you know, my dad is a cashier at Walmart, and I can't imagine Walmart tweeting out that my dad was fired and my dad finding out, uh, you know, by a notification on his phone that he right. lost his job. Well, I, and most, most people consider it to be a, a cowardly move. But in the president's situation, it seems as though he uses it as a as a weapon, as a sort of like, look what I'm going to do now. Like he, he seems to get excited by that kind of a, a gesture. I think that's right. And here, you know, he was reacting uh uh, you know, it appears to reports that had come out about McGahn. So although I think most people who weren't following things closely hadn't heard of McGahn, I think you're right about that. Mm-hmm. Um, there had been a report that came out 11 days earlier in the New York Times that said that McGahn had been cooperated extensively with uh, special counsel Robert Mueller, had sat for actually over 30 hours of interviews with him. And then there was continuing reports that day that Trump's legal team was caught by surprise. And that's interesting because typically, and, I, and I'll say this now as somebody on the other side uh, of federal investigations, usually all the lawyers and the legal teams talk to each other very extensively about what they're saying to the government because you don't know what the government is doing. The government's sort of operating in secret, so you want to share as much information as possible about what questions the government is asking, what they tip their hand about in terms of what they're interested in. So the fact that Trump seemed to know is a concern and the New York Times that day, that day, the day of the firing, wrote a story that said that Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner were, were the ones who pushed out McGahn and that Ivanka had gone to her father complaining about the New York Times article about uh, his cooperation. And that that had something to do with the uh, firing. Is the, uh, the, the length in which they uh, interviewed him, 30 hours, is that significant to, I mean, maybe President Trump thought, oh, sure, sit down with Mueller talk to the investigators. Maybe he thought it was going to be an hour. They would just exchange pleasantries and, and there wasn't much for McGahn to say. But 30 hours has got to, you know, raise uh, some alarms. That, that's an extraordinarily long amount of time to talk to a witness. You know, first of all, you don't spend 30 hours talking to somebody who's not helping your case. OK. OK. That's just a, that's, that's really common sense. I don't think I don't think anyone needed me to say it, but I think that's that's fairly obvious. So that's that's one one, I think, thing that comes that comes across. The also, also thing. The other thing I'd say is you don't spend 30 hours talking to somebody who's not helpful to you and being cooperative with you. Uh, you know, to me, 30 hours seems to me like a witness who's working with you to give you information you need. And he's being very, very helpful moving forward your case. And you've mentioned before witnesses who are cooperating. Is that the same situation here in the sense that someone who's cooperating maybe in the Mueller investigation previously has information that's useful and they're trying to get out of something themselves? You know, it's very different, Patty. It's it's a good thing for you to bring up because, for example, last week we talked about Rick Gates uh, very briefly about the man who had flipped and testified against Paul Manafort. You know, he's somebody who was facing criminal charges. He decided to cooperate. He got a special deal, and he got benefits in exchange for his cooperation from Mueller and Mueller's team. 
this is very different. I mean, when we talk about McGann being cooperative here, it's just he's a guy sitting for an interview. You know, he's not throwing up roadblocks. McGann could have tried to fight this in court. I think he would have been unsuccessful in doing so. I mean, one thing I, I think we should just say up front, and I know we'll discuss at length with our guests later on, is that there's no attorney-client privilege between the president and the White House counsel about criminal activity, about uh, is part of a criminal investigation. So he really you know, had kind of free reign to answer all of Mueller's questions. And that's fascinating. I can't wait to talk to our guest about whether or not there are other situations or what that's like to know that attorney-client privilege isn't necessarily in place between the White House counsel and the president. It, it, it has to be very unusual for a lawyer. I will say, you know, in my in my practice, it's something you grow used to as a lawyer, speaking very candidly with your clients about their legal issues, to always think about the fact that you may have to recount that later uh, certainly would, I think, um, affect the way that you give, the manner in which you give advice to your client. Um, and, you know, here we have, uh, you know, uh, I think something that's very interesting, which is, you know, and the reason that people talk about it as obstruction of justice right away is a pattern of firings and discussions of firings by uh, President Trump. So what we had initially, obviously, was the firing of Comey shortly after uh, Trump um, allegedly told Comey to let Flynn go and and Comey refused to do so or did not did not do so. Um, then you, of course, have and we'll talk a little bit more about this later, about uh, Trump just telling McGahn that he wanted to fire Mueller. McGahn pushed back on that. One of many things I'm sure that Mr. Mueller was interested in hearing about. Uh, and then we also have had, and this has been a big discussion lately, we talked some last week about Attorney General Jeff Sessions and uh, Trump's desire to fire him. And so you have, I think, a, a pattern by, by Trump that whenever somebody is um, you know, involved with the Mueller investigation or moving the Mueller investigation forward or not stopping the Mueller investigation, he wants he fires them to obstruct or impede the investigation. And, and I think uh, as an investigator, when I was a prosecutor, patterns of activity are very good ways of convincing a jury of um, a person's intent as to doing something. So if a, a jury doesn't believe that the the intent of firing Comey was due to obstruction, you can say, well, look at all these other instances mm -hmm. where you can see that Trump was firing people for the same purpose. So I think a very consequential decision here by Trump. As a former prosecutor, would you be interested in knowing why McGahn pushed back and was the obstacle to the firings, that, that he would not allow Mueller to be fired, that he would not allow, because he knew something. Would you want to know what the mechanization in place was? For Very those much decisions? so. Very much so, Patty. And that's why I really believe that McGahn, and, and I said this back in September, I did a Twitter thread about this, where I think McGahn's testimony is, is, is likely the mo he's likely the most important witness for Robert Mueller Ooh. in the obstruction piece of this because really? the, the challenge in an obstruction case in, in, like this is proving uh, Trump's intent. And to do that, you don't have a magic telescope to see inside of his brain. So you have to do it from facts and circumstances, you know, things that he did, things that he said that, that Trump did, Trump said, but also what was told to him. And here you have Don McGahn giving advice that might be private and um, confidential in another context, giving advice to, to the president and telling him what his legal jeopardy could be, warning him potentially about the danger of certain paths. And so you know that Trump knew about these dangers, knew about these problems, knew about these legal issues, potentially. I don't know what McGahn would say, but he could have known about that before making those decisions. Could be wow. Very important.
Yeah, this is this is crazy stuff. It I, is. I well, know. you know, I, I think that that was essentially your reaction as a non-lawyer was the reaction, I think, of Trump's <laughs> legal team, because we the next day saw a series of tweets from Donald Trump on the subject. Uh, we, we we the first one was Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner had nothing to do with the so-called pushing out of Don McGahn. The fake news media has it purposely so wrong. Uh, they love to portray chaos in the White House when they know that chaos doesn't exist. Just a smooth running machine with changing parts. How, how can he even say like, how could he type that at all? I don't know. It, I, it, I don't. It all smacks of chaos. I, I, I would say so. Chaos. We have Omarosa running around with the tape recorder. <laughs> Speaking of chaos, then 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 the then the president tweeted out the rigged Russia witch hunt did not come into play even a little bit with respect to my decision with Don McGahn. I think that was his attempt to do the reverse of the Lester Holt uh, interview the last time. First time you fired somebody, he went on TV and said, yeah, it's all because of Russia. Uh, this time it's like, nope, not Russia. Clearly, uh, I think a lawyer or some other advisor had a role in that one. And then the last tweet that I wanted to talk about. Uh, Trump said, I am very excited about the person who will be taking the place of Don McGahn as White House counsel. I liked Don, but he was not responsible for me not firing Bob Mueller or Jeff Sessions. I want to diagram that tweet so badly. I don't understand, but he was not responsible for me not firing Bob Mueller or Jeff Sessions. Well, it's interesting, not, right? Not, not. Well, not, not. So what he's, I think, admitting there is he did contemplate firing Bob Mueller. He did contemplate firing Def Je Jeff Sessions. He decided not to, at least for now. Uh, I think we've heard recently Rudy Giuliani said that Sessions' job is safe through Thanksgiving, which I think all of us know what that means. If your boss came to you and said, you know what, your job is safe through Thanksgiving or through the or not through Thanksgiving, say through the midterms. Yes. Your, your, your job is safe through November. You'd be like, OK, I need to start looking for a job starting in December. Right. So, um, you know, I, it, it's interesting um, what, it, what this tells me is that Trump's uh, that Trump's team. Um, under, saw the same thing that I saw, which is a pattern that could be used to obstruct justice. And I think, you know, what 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 you want to think about here when you think about a pattern of activity is, you know, what what could McGahn have done to help Mueller construct that pattern of activity? And there's a lot of press reporting that can tell us why. So one thing uh, is that in September there was reporting that. Stephen Miller, who is an aide to the president, had typed a letter uh, firing James Comey at the direction of Trump. And McGahn saw this letter and was very opposed to it, expressed his opposition. He said that it had an angry, meandering tone. It, he, it, he did not like the references to conversations with Comey in the letter. And he made his own uh, edits and revisions and suggestions and gave his thoughts regarding that letter. Nice. So you could only imagine um, how important that could be in an obstruction case because either McGahn said, you know, there's no real legal problem with what you're doing, uh, but this is not not a good PR move for you, in which case I think that would help Trump. Uh, because then he could say, look, my lawyer or a lawyer told, didn't raise these legal issues. Or McGahn may have said, firing Comey could get you in legal trouble. Don't do it. And Trump said, I don't care. I'm firing him anyway. Right. Well, that seems like that's the case, isn't it? It's going to be interesting, it, right? It, it was I, interesting that, that there, were there were instances where he wanted to do something anyway and did follow McGahn's advice. Yeah. Because right? he didn't fire Mueller. He did, but he's saying it wasn't because of him. That's what that tweet means. 
Right. It's I mean, not because of McGann that he, he held on to Mueller and Sessions. I mean, the way I read the reporting about the firing of Mueller, which came, that was in January, where, you know, it was reported that Trump told McGahn to fire Mueller. McGahn had this heated conversation with him, pushed back heavily on that. And um, the way I read that was that just by not following Trump's command, McGahn kind of stopped it in its tracks because at that time, I guess Trump wasn't in the position where he wanted to fire McGahn. And Trump wasn't going to do it by himself for whatever reason. But that's going to be obviously relevant. And then, of course, uh, there was also reports that in March, uh, Trump suggested to an aide that McGahn should issue a statement denying the firing of of Mueller. And McGahn refused to do that because that would have been false. I you know, some people have asked me whether that's witness tampering. I don't think that would be witness tampering. Um, and it, it would be hard to prove it would, ha- you know, Trump would have to know that McGahn was going to be talking to Mueller. And this would be a way of trying to um, suggest him a different story to tell or something. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, all in all, what you see here is McGahn very closely involved in potentially obstructive activity, uh, a, a, a activity that I think would interest Mueller. And. Uh, what when the initial cooperation of McGahn was reported, they talked about how he was motivated by the fact that the other lawyers that were the personal lawyers are, that were handling uh, the president's uh, defense didn't want to um, assert privilege at all, executive privilege. And he was mad that their Ty Cobb, who was a former lawyer for the president, spoke loudly in public about uh, and he was overheard talking about how McGahn was hiding documents from the rest of the team uh, in a safe. Man, that's just insane. That is. And and you I mean, usually lawyers that are working on the same team obviously share information with each other, just like anyone at any job. I think you work together with your colleagues. Um, But, you know, people speculated what documents could he possibly be keeping in that safe? Uh, and what I would, um, you know, what I would suggest would, 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 would the first thing that came to mind would be the uh, the letter by Miller uh, containing all of the edits right. uh, and the uh, comments from McGahn, which obviously would be a very key piece of evidence for Robert Mueller. Can they subpoena that uh, what's in the safe if there is such a thing? Absolutely. And, right. and I, I wouldn't be surprised if Don McGahn just gave that over voluntarily oh. or it was <laughs> given over because it, it sounded like they didn't assert privilege at all. There's been discussions this week about them saying, well, actually, retroactively, we're going to um, we're going to try to limit that, which I think will be unsuccessful. (laughs) So now let's bring in Bob Bauer, a very accomplished attorney who, among other things, served as White House counsel for President Obama. Uh, But he's got some thoughts. (laughs) I would say so. (laughs) I can't think of, of anybody better to bring in to talk about this subject. Let's hear from him now. Welcome to the show, Bob. Thank you for being here with us. Thank you. So uh, you were the White House counsel for President Obama. I I think a lot of the people listening to this have no idea what the White House counsel does. Can you explain that to us? Certainly. Uh, The the White House counsel, uh, chosen by the president, not confirmed by the Senate, runs a legal operation in the White House with lawyers divided between the West Wing and the executive office building. And they're charged on a day-to-day basis with providing legal support uh, to the president on a range of issues. Uh, Those include, for example, uh, as you know from reading about Don McGahn's activities in this area, supporting the president in advancing judicial nominations, advising on vetting and ethics issues in the White House, 
advising on legal issues that bear on the president's executive authority and national security in other areas, reviewing signing statements, reviewing speeches, a whole host of legal issues that come up in the day-to-day operation of the executive branch. And there has to be such a limited number of people who've had this job. Have former White House counsels left notes anywhere? Is there like a stash of information where you can kind of go, okay, what happens in this situation? What sort of guidelines do you have? You can certainly, there are White House counsels who have left sort of oral histories about their experience. So, for example, you can go to the Miller Center side of the University of Virginia, uh, where you find a, a lot of very useful material about the presidency, conferences, postings, and the like. And there you will find oral histories from White House counsels in the past who have related their experience in the office, how they viewed the role, particular episodes that they bring to the audience's attention to illustrate their larger point. So one thing I, I imagine people are going to want to know, too, Bob, is how you how you become White House counsel. I, I know in your case, you obviously had represented uh, the president's campaign in, in a prior capacity. Yes. I mean, the White House counsels, are, again, are truly personal choices by the president, just in the same way that the president chooses his or her senior staff. The White House counsel can come from a variety of backgrounds, previously knowing the president, not having much personal relationship with the president at all or prior professional relationship. And so the backgrounds and experiences of White House counsels have varied not only from administration to administration, but within administrations, because although it has happened, uh, many White House counsels have served for you know roughly a two years, year and a half, two years, maybe a little bit more, sometimes three. There have been instances where they've served the entire term, but that's rare. And even within administrations, successive White House counsels bring different backgrounds and experiences to the job. So I, I, I know another question that is going to come to everyone's mind is how you exited your job. I, I know it was very different uh, <laughs> than the context uh, that Mr. McGann exited his. Yes. Well, I came to the White House in December of 2009. I left in the summer of 2011, at which point I resumed a role that I had previously had in President Obama's political life, and that was as general counsel to the reelection campaign as I had I've been general counsel to the first campaign in 2007-2008. So those were the bookends of my service in the White House. So, What would have been, in, in your understanding, the circumstances under which other White House counsels have been asked to leave or have parted ways with the president? Parted ways. Well, I think most of the time the White House counsel negotiates a departure that's mutually acceptable. There have been circumstances, as in the first Clinton administration, where the White House counsel has left under public pressure, maybe not so much because the president wanted to part with the White House counsel at the time, but because you know there was some criticism, justified or unjustified, of how the White House counsel had performed. But for the most part, uh, White House counsel's sort of reach the natural limit of their service, or they have to return to private sector for one reason or another. So one, one question I was curious about, were you, and you, if you're able to tell us, were you ever asked to participate in any firings of anyone or any personnel decisions like the, uh, of that nature? Yeah, were you HR for the president? <laughs> you're not, yes, that's a good question. You're not HR for the president because there are other um, agencies and personnel who are involved in both vetting people who come into the government and then again evaluating performance problems. But the White House counsel definitely has a role. So I didn't, other than within my own office, uh, and there, fortunately, I wasn't faced with this, I, I didn't have 
uh, the authority nor the history of firing anybody, certainly, but I certainly was a participant in evaluations of those who were considered for appointment and also the evaluations of particular problems that may have arisen in the performance of people who are already there. Do you have thoughts on the significance of McGahn pushing back on President Trump's desire to fire Mueller and Jeff Sessions? Yes, I mean, I think it's an episode that illustrates a central tension in the role. Uh, according to press reports, McGahn viewed his job fundamentally as representing the office of the president, representing the president only in his personal capacity. The president had a different view and believed, essentially, that what he expected of lawyers in the private sector, which was complete loyalty to him personally, translated somehow into the presidency, and it doesn't. So to the extent that McGahn believed that he was required to stand firm where he thought the long-term institutional interests of the presidency required it, McGahn was absolutely correct. So one one question that I have been asked many times is wh- what privilege exists between the conversations that uh, President Trump had with Don McGahn and People are surprised when I suggest to them that that attorney-client privilege doesn't exist as to some of these matters. Can you explain to us what that what the extent of the privilege is between uh, the White House Counsel and the President? Certainly, and this goes back again to the role that the White House Counsel plays. The White House Counsel is not a personal lawyer to the President. The White House Counsel is a government lawyer, and the privilege protects the President in his or her official capacity. So the line that the White House counsel has to navigate in circumstances in which the president is facing some sort of personal legal problem or peril is one of staying very clear of communications with the president about personal matters, which are, because he's a government lawyer, not privileged. So if the president were, for example, to call the White House counsel in the office and say, listen, I, I just made a terrible mistake, and then relate something that is arguably a criminal offense, not only does the White House counsel, and I, I can't think of you know, an immediate example to offer you, but not only is the White House counsel engaged in a conversation that's not privileged, the White House counsel is actually obligated to report wrongdoing within the executive branch that comes to the White House counsel's attention in the course of the performance of his or her official duties. So having the president understand that there are certain conversations that he only wants to have with his personal lawyers is of paramount importance. Is, is part of the role of the White House counsel, in essence, to keep the president honest? There- well, the, well, I, I'm not sure I'd put it quite that way, although that might be a conclusion you draw from some of those activities, some of the responsibilities the White House counsel has. The White House counsel's job is to represent the president, not Donald Trump personally, but the president. And, of course, in the over the run of... A, term in the White House counsel's office, a White House counsel winds up counseling on compliance issues, winds up advising on how the president and senior staff can avoid violating laws or ethical rules. In that sense, yes, uh, that has a personal significance for the president because the successful White House counsel, the one who's successful in discharging that responsibility, is clearly protecting both the presidency and, of course, as a necessary consequence, protecting the president in his personal capacity to the extent that he might be subject to some sort of personal legal exposure. So the successful White House counsel is, without a doubt, helpful to the president personally, but again, as a result of the responsibilities that that counsel has as a government employee. 
Now, another concept that uh, we hear a lot about and I know uh, listeners have heard about is executive privilege. Does that cover conversations between the White House counsel and the president? Yes. Yes, there's a deliberative privilege that can also apply. And again, we're talking about communications that take place in the course of the president conducting, as, as he must, confidential communications and the discharge of his official responsibilities and only of official responsibilities. So these issues came to a head and to judicial resolution during the Clinton administration, where the president then was faced, as he was throughout his whole terms, with attacks of one kind or another on wrongdoing from the Whitewater real estate episode all the way uh, through the Lewinsky matter. And at one point, there uh, several points, a question was raised about communications uh, with the White House Counsel's Office, including communications in which both the White House Counsel and personal counsel were involved. And the courts were very clear that the privileges, executive or attorney-client, did not extend to communications that could have a bearing on the conduct of criminal proceedings involving the president. And, and, and that is the decision that I had looked at myself. I, I, that, it seems to me squarely on point, to use a legal term, uh, but it seems to me exactly analogous, I should say, to, to, the, to the situation that we might be facing here. I wonder, uh, were you ever in a situation where you were asked to, uh, you know, to uh, answer questions regarding President Obama's uh, conversations with you? Well, I normally would say um, much of what I did, obviously, uh, as White House counsel, for all the usual reasons having to do with confidentiality, I couldn't disclose. But I'm happy to say that no, just as a matter of the <laughs> historical record, uh, I was not called upon to testify before the Congress or before any other legal body about events in which I was involved with as White House counsel. I certainly received, our office received, all sorts of letters, and some of them not wildly complimentary from Capitol Hill, calling me on to, to respond on behalf of the president to this or that complaint, but nothing within the, I think, the zone that you're talking about here. What would have been Don McGahn's options if he wanted to be less than cooperative with Robert Mueller? Without knowing everything he faced, uh, all of the analysis that went into what he was being asked and the issues around what he would disclose in response, I don't know that I can be terribly informed about this. I can't give a very informed answer, except to say that, of course, the president could have, and McGahn could have actively cooperated through counsel with the president and his lawyer's request, uh, that the president asserted executive privilege uh, on his behalf. The president says he didn't do that. The president didn't try to invoke any of these privileges that I think, frankly, would have been unsuccessful sustaining before a court. And McGahn could have, you know, depending on the circumstances, as I said earlier, supported the president in that effort. But and, and maybe there was some discussion along those lines, none of that that I've seen in the public press. But at the end of all of this, uh, I don't know that I could see any way, again, based entirely on the public record, that Don McGahn would not eventually have had to testify on these matters. And I'm, I'm trying to understand in, in the piece that you wrote about he could have resisted the interviews on the constitutional theory that Trump's lawyers have been testing publicly, right, the idea that there is no evidence for him to give, right? Right. That's a fair point. I did write about that. There's an example of a dodge that's not based so much on the material, on the content of the testimony, but on the larger constitutional objection that the Mueller um, probe had exceeded its authority. If it's essentially suggesting that 
the Mueller probe is illegal at the core. But the argument might have been, for example, if Mueller was threatening to subpoena McGahn, that McGahn was prepared to cooperate but couldn't cooperate until such time as that larger constitutional question was resolved. But I, that would have been solely marking time, in my view. Um, I don't think, first of all, the constitutional – this would have been less of a concern to McGahn. I don't think the constitutional argument really has much merit. But setting that aside, I think eventually, while that might have stalled things out for a while, the outcome would have been the same. Now, I'm saying the outcome would have been the same and McGahn would have still testified – if you don't assume that at some point before McGahn testifies under this arrangement whereby sort of the moment of truth is delayed, you don't assume that the president steps in and gets rid of Bob Mueller. So I, I want to switch gears for a second, Bob, and talk a little bit about election law, because uh, our listeners don't know this, but you are a sort of renowned expert on federal campaign, uh, campaign finance law, and you have written about potential campaign finance violations in context of the Mueller investigation and other investigations that are going on at this time. And I have to say, and I'm going to do a little mea culpa here, when I first read what you wrote last year uh, about potential campaign finance violations, I was skeptical that we would see uh, potential charges or indictments uh, or, in this case, an information coming out of this that would have a campaign finance charge. And I was completely wrong uh, because Michael Cohen pled guilty to a campaign finance violation. And I'm curious if you can um, talk a little bit about the campaign finance violations that not only the one that has been pled to in this case, but also potential campaign finance violations beyond that. I can say that I was also um, surprised at the campaign finance violations that so far surfaced just because those are never easy cases for the government to make. But in this instance, it appears they've assembled some very strong evidence, evidence that, again, will be tested presumably and well, won't be tested because he pled guilty, but evidence that certainly goes beyond what was amassed in the John Edwards case, the failed prosecution of John Edwards on a similar in, in similar circumstances, a case that bears a striking resemblance to the situation in which the President Michael Cohn find themselves. And there again, the question was, at what point do payments made to solve a personal problem with political implications for a candidate become so political that those payments are regulated by the campaign finance laws? And at what point, going the other way, are they so personal that the campaign finance laws don't apply? And in the Edwards case, uh, the jury acquitted, uh, I think, on one count and then was hung on the others. And Edwards, uh, who had supporters who helped finance his effort to conceal an affair and a child born of the affair, uh, the jury found, you know, in Edwards' favor. Uh, I think this is very different uh, for a number of reasons. Some of it has to do with the role of the news organization, American Media, um, and the evidence that, that, that really points in the direction of this organization having little concern for helping Donald Trump protect his marital privacy and a lot more to do with their interest in his candidacy. But then, of course, at the center of it all is Michael Cohn, who is a direct witness to the motives that they had for the payments that were made to Karen McDougal and uh, Stormy Daniels. So I think that, that, that case is much stronger than those cases often are where there isn't such evidence that goes to political motive, to the purpose of influencing the outcome of a federal election. The other campaign finance violations that you're talking about that have been alleged and discussed at some length have to do with the really overriding question of whether or not 
uh, the Americans, uh, there were Americans who collaborated in a way with Russian attempts to interfere with the election that translated into campaign finance violations. The campaign finance laws are very sweeping in their prohibition of foreign national activity in a federal election. And as the Mueller indictment of Russia party shows, there was a concerted effort on the part of Russian intelligence officials and related agencies to influence the outcome of the 2016 election and to sow discord, et cetera. But certainly there was direct campaign-related act to candidate-related activity on their part in plain violation of federal law. Then the question is, what about American nationals who help them? And the federal campaign finance laws prohibit Americans from soliciting illegal foreign national report support. The solicitation standard is broad. Solicitations for that purpose can be both expressed and implied. The federal campaign finance laws also prohibit U.S. nationals from substantially assisting foreign nationals in breaking U.S. law in that respect. And so the Trump Tower meeting is a prima facie case. Uh, I wouldn't say, again, that we know everything there is to know about it, but there you have a U.S. campaign aware that a foreign government is actively supporting a candidate and is actively engaged in activities intended to support that candidate. And the U.S. campaign sends a clear signal to the foreign government that it's sort of open for business. And while it may have not been happy with what the Russians brought to that particular meeting in the summer of 2016, it certainly didn't make any bones about its interest in any help the Russians could provide. And it certainly is the basis for uh, an argument, a claim, that there is U.S. national activity here in violation of that provision of the campaign finance laws. Yeah, and that that is really what I wanted to go to next. So I'm glad you you raised that topic because that's really where you first started writing about this when we heard about the Trump Tower meeting, that a contribution from a foreign national uh, to a presidential campaign would be a campaign finance violation. And I, I, I thought to myself, I just I can't imagine the special counsel's office ultimately building a case along those lines. And then we saw the indictment of Russian nationals and these affiliated corporations that they had or, or uh, entities that they had for making illegal contributions to a U.S. election. And so we know that Mueller has an indictment along those lines. And then the question really is, were there Americans who joined a conspiracy or aided and abetted that effort or, as you pointed out, solicited uh, that sort of contribution? Yes. Yeah, so the, you're quite right. The case can go in several different directions. One is under general you know, conspiracy and aiding and abetting laws. Uh, of course, in the Mueller indictments of Russia parties, there was a clear tie-in to the campaign finance laws, but it was via the 18 U.S.C. Section 371 uh, prohibition of conspiracies to defraud the United States. And there the allegation was that the Russian parties were engaged in activities that they were concealing that violated federal laws. And by concealing them, they made it impossible for the Federal Election Commission to enforce the core prohibitions against foreign national activity. The other issue you raise in your comment, which I should have mentioned because it might make it all a little bit clearer, is that, of course, the campaign finance laws apply where money is spent, either contributions that are made or expenditures that are made. And one of the questions that's been raised is, well, how sweeping is that attack on financial influence, direct or indirect? And the answer is, it's quite sweeping. A contribution is defined under federal law as anything of value. There is no question that opposition research, quote-unquote, information that was brought to the Trump campaign, whether it's what we know about or what we still don't know about, would constitute something of value. 
And in any event, the Americans were aware that the Russians were spending money because, of course, they accepted the, uh, the services or the support, uh, entertained the meeting with Russian parties who traveled all the way from Moscow, at least some of them did, to participate in that discussion. So there's money involved in the campaign finance laws, just by definition, but the form that it takes can be virtually any form, and that's why I come back to contributions having been defined as or have, being defined under the statute as anything of value. And, you know, and, and I think another, I, first of all, I think that is exactly right. That would be another, um, another legal fault line that we would see in, a, in this case, if a, a case like that ever made it to trial. I think uh, another uh, point where I think we'll see some, some back and forth between a defense and a prosecution would be the, the criminal, what I'm going to call the criminal hook. What makes this criminal? So I think one thing that listeners may not know is that Campaign finance laws are typically enforced in in a civil capacity. In other words, the, um, the there are fines that are imposed. There the, there are not criminal prohibitions that are uh, that there are not criminal cases that are usually brought. But the but the law makes it so that if uh, these statutes are violated knowingly and willfully, it's a criminal violation, which uh, of course is the basis for the charge against Michael Cohen. And I'm wondering if you could explain to us what exactly that means, knowingly and willfully, in this context. Yes, of course. Well, interestingly, the campaign finance laws have two, uh, there are two vehicles or two paths by which they can be enforced in the face of knowing and willful violations. One is an aggravated civil offense, a knowing and willful offense that the Federal Election Commission can pursue. And if it pursues them, it has available, if it's successful in making its case, it has available a claim for substantially greater civil penalties than in the ordinary garden variety campaign finance violation case. But it is also true, as you point out, the Department of Justice has concurrent criminal jurisdiction, and it can conclude, even if the FEC doesn't act, it can independently conclude that an investigation is warranted, and it can, without any involvement of the Federal Election Commission, bring a case where it uh, believes that there was the requisite mens rea, that the participants were aware uh, that they were violating the campaign finance laws. Uh, and so on all the, by the traditional standards by which that kind of knowing violation is judged for other purposes in the criminal justice system, those same standards apply uh, in cases where the department is seeking to enforce against violations of the campaign finance laws that are knowing and willful in character. And what do you think of the argument that has been made that that even if someone like Michael Cohen or another more sophisticated person had violated campaign finance laws, that someone like Donald Trump or his son did not because they didn't know that they were breaking the law at the time. Yeah, my guess is they're going to claim a lot of ignorance on this stuff, aren't they? Mm -hmm. I suppose uh, there's been evidence, by the way, just in sort of off-the-record remarks, whether these are you know truly informed sources or not, that that is certainly a claim that's going to be made on behalf of Don Jr. He was a neophyte. He was an enthusiast. He had no idea what he was doing. The problem that you face there uh, is twofold. First of all, there are senior members of the campaign who attended the meeting who knew that these were Russians, who knew that they were coming on behalf of a government that was committed uh, to the support of Donald Trump. In other words, they were aware of the nature of the meeting that they walked into. And so you start with that, that this case is not only about Don Jr., even though he was, if, if you will, you know, the initiator or the, the first contact who moved this to the campaign for a meeting. Secondly, there's still the question of what Donald Trump knew. 
And Trump has said he's known nothing. I've always thought that that was a bold claim to make. It is extraordinary in the history of presidential campaigns that anything of that potential significance, a foreign government advises a, a presidential campaign that it has damaging information about the candidate is invited to a meeting to share it, and the candidate isn't informed. Uh, the candidate, by the way, being one who is known to have you know, a real, how would you call it, propensity for exercising control in his immediate environment. I consider the way, for example, he ran the Trump organization. But in this case, on something that dramatic, nobody informs him. Now, there are reasons to think that this is an ongoing issue of inquiry. Uh, there is some question about telephone traffic potentially between the president's son and the president. Again, it's been denied. Uh, secondly, the president started making noises around the same time, and unfortunately, I can't quite pinpoint the date. But uh, he indicated um, in very striking proximity to that meeting, uh, within 24 to 48 hours, that he would have something very interesting to say about Hillary Clinton in the near future. So who knows where that investigation goes? But the president certainly, there's no, there's no reason other than the president's uh, denial at this point to imagine that um, the Mueller investigation stops there. And then the last thing I would want to mention here that I think is important, the presidential campaign itself as an entity has liability. So there is institutional exposure here, as well as the exposure potentially of individuals who are involved in dealing with the Russians around potential campaign support. It's interesting. I'll say as a former uh, federal prosecutor that you know, there are a lot of rules regarding charging entities. The uh, Justice Department often disfavors it. But in this context, one could imagine uh, a president who couldn't be indicted and a campaign that could. It could be very interesting. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and campaign, senior campaign figures who could be indicted. And then, of course, you would know better than I what the chances are of the president potentially appearing in any of those, um, in any of those charges as an unindicted co-conspirator. And and one last thing I wanted to ask you about is is President Trump has uh, attacked the campaign finance violation that Michael Cohen pleaded guilty to by saying that the Obama campaign had faced <laughs> similar campaign finance uh, charges, but they were given a slap on the wrist. I'm curious what your reaction was to that uh, that attack by uh, President I, I Trump. Didn't. I didn't think it was a particularly um, noteworthy comment because there really isn't any possible comparison between uh, the Obama campaign's uh, regulatory issues and those that the Trump campaign faces in the criminal justice system. And it's so lacking in merit, it sort of disappeared off the radar screen. And at the end of the, the Obama campaign, in a period of one and a half years or so, barely two years, raised and spent uh, $750 million, and I'm not accounting for funds that went through the party system in support of the ticket. And there were reporting issues. I'd call them the sort of thing that you expect might happen, where sort of mainly toward the end of the campaign, as I recall, don't hold me to it, but there were a series of questions about whether or not reporting deadlines for contributions made within uh, certain periods of time, uh, either expedited reporting deadlines had been satisfied. And the Obama campaign, you know, took their responsibilities there seriously and settled at the end of the at the end of, sometime after the campaign. I can't recall when, but settled with the Federal Election Commission, paid a civil penalty. There was never any suggestion that these were anything other than the sorts of errors 
that can, however, unfortunately surface in large presidential campaigns raising that kind of money on that kind of schedule doesn't bear any relationship whatsoever to Donald Trump's and his campaign's legal troubles. I didn't think it did, but I definitely wanted to give you a chance to respond on that. And I've got to say, Bob, this was an amazing conversation and very revealing. And I suspect that our listeners have 100 more questions they would like me to I ask. I do, too, but uh, some other time, I hope. I uh, Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining sure, us, Bob. Very much My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Uh, Renato, so much happens so quickly. Do you have any speculation on what might be happening next? It is hard to predict, Patty, but I think I think we're definitely going to see some uh, continued back and forth uh, from Giuliani and the arrest of Trump's legal team regarding this supposed deadline that they've come up with for Bob Mueller, which doesn't actually exist, but I think it exists in Mr. Giuliani's mind. Uh, and then I think we're also going to be hearing a lot about uh, the potential firing of Jeff Sessions in the weeks to come. R- r- as a quick reminder, he it was recently uh, alleged by M- George Papanopoulos that uh, that Jeff Sessions lied under oath. So that's of particular significance. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us next week for our next episode. Until next time, let's stay on topic. (laughs) 